Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Psalm 119, verses 65 through 72, these are the words of God. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart, I will observe your precepts. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth, uh, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. In last week's message, I addressed, among other verses, Psalm 119, verse 61. And uh, in that verse, <clears throat> David said, Although the cords of the wicked encircle me, I have not forgotten your law. And the main point during that, uh, with that verse was to show that even as a covenant people, uh, there is no guarantee that we will be kept from difficulty in this life. There's no such guarantee in the Scripture. No matter what the storybook preachers tell us, Scripture expressly teaches the exact opposite of this idea, right? Uh, we will face tribulation. We will face trial in this life. And it's more than just the text of Scripture that proves that out. I think if I asked for a show of hands of how many of you had faced tribulation and trial, even though you knew Jesus, you'd all raise your hand because this is true. But it also says, the scripture does tell us, that when this happens, when trial happens, we are to look to King Jesus. And when we look to King Jesus, what happens? He promises us peace amidst the storm. That to me is a greater hope, a greater joy for me. To support this point, I shared two passages with you uh, last week. And those two passages were from 2 Kings 6 and 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In the case of Elisha, which is the 2 Kings passage, uh, the lesson that was learned is that even though our enemy may be encircling us, we can and should rest in the truth that God is unfailingly working all things together for our good. Can I get an amen on that one? He is working all things together for our good. We may need spiritual eyes to see it, just as Elisha's servant did. But it doesn't mean that he's not working. On the other hand, in the Corinthian passage, when we are afflicted, when we're perplexed, when we're persecuted, or even struck down, just as the Apostle Paul was when he wrote the letter, uh, we can rest assured that God will never allow us to be crushed, to be filled with despair, to be forsaken, or to be destroyed. Now, I just want to give a brief disclaimer on this, and that is the point of the text here is not for us to obsess over literal meanings. This, is, this happens a lot in our biblical interpretation. The same Paul that says, uh, I may be afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and even struck down, but I'm not crushed, filled with despair, forsaken, or destroyed, says elsewhere in Scripture that he despaired of life itself. Now, wait a second. That sounds like he's contradicting himself. It's not. The, the contrast is what is important in this text, right? Uh, is there despairing for Christians in some degree? Sure. 
There are times when you look at life and it just doesn't seem to be panning out the way you thought it would, and you tend to panic. You tend to despair, if you will. But this is not a despair unto abandonment. It's not a despair unto God leaving you. It's not a despair that leaves you hopeless. That's the important piece of the contrast that Paul is making. This, uh, though, fills me with courage to know that even though I face all of this other stuff, God is never going to forsake me. He's never going to leave me. The overall idea that I want us to grasp is that affliction and pain are very real. They are very tangible. uh, They are very present in this life. It's a fact. But so is God's promise to sustain us. This morning, what I want to do is I want to walk us through uh, two more ideas. I want to expand that idea a little bit bigger. Number one, I want to share with you where, not in this order, but I want to share with you where affliction comes from. This is a challenge for us, right? So where does affliction come from in life? And then number two, in that affliction, wherever it comes from, uh, I want you to see that God's desire is to actually train us in righteousness. There's a purpose in everything. So I've titled the message today, uh, Learning from Affliction. And we'll start with verses 65 through 67. Okay, here we go. You have, Sean, I think the electric amp is feeding back. Wonderful. Um, You have dealt (laughs) well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. I'm not going to do anything about it. Uh, According to your word, teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. The first thing that we should notice here is that David shifts from, from petition to praise. David said that God had dwelt well with him. Okay, He has done it. It's a past tense thing or it has uh, affected him in that present reality. Up to this point though, David has asked many times and in many ways for God to deal well with him. It, it seems here that God has finally answered that petition. How God answers David will become evident as we look through the context, but let's keep moving first. David followed his praise with a request. So he goes from request to praise, back to request, because that's who David is. That's who we should be. We should never be ashamed to run to God for our needs. So he asks God to teach him. Do we do that, church? Show of hands. How many of you, when you face a hard situation in life, you actually run to God? Show your hands. How many more of you run to Google? (laughs) I I know who you are. Anyway, everybody's like, oh, no. No, I can't raise my hand now. It's true. We do. We run to Google a lot. When we do, uh, when we run to God, that is, do we allow uh, our, do we allow the ideas that God teaches to help change our view of trial? When When we're facing trials, when we run to God, do we allow him to speak to our trial? Do we allow him to comfort us in pain and affliction? This is an important idea because whether we see the context in the whole or not, God is dealing well with us, and it's never going to end. He's always going to work it out. We just don't always see it. Our training in righteousness has always been God's mission. This is the very big problem in the church today with the notion that... um, that we were saved when we accepted Jesus, and now it's just waiting to eternity. 
That's not what it is. We were saved unto a process. We were saved unto a transformation. We were saved to, to be shaped and to be molded into the image of God. Another way of looking at this would be to think about Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus' substitutionary death uh, was God dealing well with us. How many of you know that? Jesus dying on a cross was actually God dealing well with us. But that was only the beginning of the journey, and that's not intended to downplay the work of Jesus. We were given new life through Jesus' sacrifice, but that new life uh, only grows through the process of sanctification. In other words... God dwelt well, dealt well with us on the, with Jesus on the cross, although he dealt harshly with Christ, but our training was and still is his aim. Why is that the case? Because through training, again, we are shaped into the imagers that we are. We're supposed to look like our king. Amen? Uh, the scripture tells us that the whole purpose of creation was not to fulfill God's cosmic loneliness. The whole purpose of creation was one, that he's a creator. He enjoys the beauty of his creation. But the creation of man, the creation of woman, was to subdue and to fill the earth, was to rule and to reign. And we only do that well when we reflect the image well. When you reflect the image of God poorly, you reign poorly. When you don't look like the loving creator that made you, you are not reigning well because you're not reigning lovingly. Right? If you don't look like the merciful God who bought you, then you're not reigning well. You're reigning harsher than God. You're reigning more strict than God. You have no business doing so. Right? So these are, these are challenges and things that we need to think about. We were made to uh, reflect the image of God. Here's where we begin to dive a bit deeper, though. Do you notice that David said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Okay, check this out. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. What are we seeing here? This is the result of affliction, actually. And what is the result of affliction? Course correction. Am I, am I making it clear with you? The point of God's affliction, the point of affliction in our life is course correction. What David was not saying is that he once obeyed God, and then affliction came, and that kept God's word, it kept him from obeying God's word. Uh, affliction uh, didn't somehow push David off the course, okay? I hope you guys see this. That isn't how it works. Affliction is not to blame when we stop obeying. You know who is? We are. <laughs> we are to blame when we stop obeying. The line is read more clearly if we restate it this way. I went astray, then I was afflicted, and through that affliction, I learned to keep your way again. That's what David is communicating in this. This helps us to understand that affliction in some way brings us back to the right path. It always has and it always will. And I'm going to prove it to you today in a very important way because today's church seems to have a, uh, a deep aversion to the idea of purposeful affliction. The church just hates this idea. Uh, to a large, it's probably because we don't like anything with pain in our life. How many of you know that work is work? <laughs> I know. Like, it's just... Mind-blowing, right? The old adage is, do the thing you love and you'll never have to work a day in your life. I found that's not true, right? I found that's not true because even the things I love 
our work because work is work. It's just the way it is. Now, it doesn't mean you have to make work miserable. Some of you do that. You get up on Monday morning. You don't make my work miserable. Don't mishear me. You wake up on, I know how that sounded, but anyway, you wake up, Barney makes my work miserable. Anyway, I'm messing with you. You wake up on Monday morning, and the first thing you do, listen, I, I track it. I watch this stuff. I am always watching. I'm sorry. I know that makes you terribly uncomfortable. But first thing on Monday morning, and everything people do is, Monday is awful. Well, it's going to be if you keep doing that, right? It's going to be if you keep doing that. You can change that. I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just making you realize Monday's no different than Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It is different than Friday, but whatever, right? Uh, but it's no different than if you're going to complain, just do it four days a week. That's what I'm really getting at. Anyway, so work is work, right? But the church has this deep aversion to affliction. It hates affliction. To a large degree, uh, it's because we've believed a lie that an all-knowing, all-good God would never allow people to suffer, and especially not his own people. It's a lie, church. church. Not to mention, according to this modern view, God himself would never use bad things. He'd never use evil to correct you. <laughs> of course he would. He uses your evil most of the time. When scripture says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, the modern church tries to sanitize this idea. And so what the church does is it says, it spins it and says, well, God works all good things together for our good. I wish. That'd be amazing. God does not work all good things together for your good. He may use good things, but this is simply not what the text exposes, or says. It's, it exposes our true belief. God works all things means exactly what it says. God works all things. The good, the bad, the ugly, extra ugly. I don't know. He just uses a lot of things, right? It just so happens that all things, inside of the all things, affliction is contained. Of course, there are a few ways that affliction comes. So let's just embrace this really quick. Sometimes it comes from our enemies. We saw this in verse 61 of last week. Um, although our enemies encamp around us, right? Uh, we're going to keep God's law. So our enemies might cause that affliction in our life. Sometimes it's just a series of unfortunate events that seem random. Think COVID or job loss or whatever it might be. Sadly, what happens in those random situations is that we point the finger at people we love. We point the finger at God. We, we do all kinds of things. But last, uh, and definitely not least, is that sometimes God causes affliction in our life. He brings about affliction in our life. He afflicts us. What? Nathan, what are you talking about? Well, you heard me correctly. God's plan to train us in righteousness is so important that he will himself afflict us if that is what is necessary. I've heard people in the church today reject this idea so much that they decide to twist God's word. They love to manipulate and reinterpret the Bible. I recently heard somebody espouse the idea that when Job said, that when Job said the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, that what that really is, is just Job's pitiful understanding of God's character. Well, you're dumb, because that's not what was being said there. 
I'm sorry, this is just an absurd idea. This is, this is a manifestation of, again, the faulty belief concerning God's goodness. Do we really think that taking something away from someone can never result in a good? Have children. You'll find out real quick it is an important thing. When we truly understand that God is good and that his ways are higher than ours, we will stop putting God on trial, judging him at every turn. I don't think this is how a loving God would operate. I'm really glad you're not the judge inside of all of this, right? So we got to stop putting God on trial, and we got to start trusting his every method. Remember, his ways are higher than our ways. The second you believe you understand God fully, you have exalted yourself to the status of God. Be careful. Be careful. It is no small matter, that level of idolatry. It's a very dangerous place. God afflicted Adam after the fall. He afflicted Moses in the wilderness. He afflicted David when he sinned against Bathsheba to the point of David losing a son. He afflicted Jacob during the, their wrestling match, God and Jacob's wrestling match. He afflicted Paul with a thorn in the flesh. And the list goes on and on and on. The truth is glaringly obvious. Unless we willingly shut our eyes to what the scripture says, God both causes and uses affliction in our life. Okay, there's a positive message for you today. Hope you guys are ready to go home and ponder how God might be torturing you. (laughs) It's not the point. That's not the point. The point, the joke reveals that we only view affliction through that negative lens. Right? That's, That's the point. If we, did, if we didn't view it this way, we can laugh about the joke and realize that righteousness is all too important. I want whatever it is that God has for me. Now, now I've given you some uh, big picture ideas of proving that. Let me zoom in detailed on the scripture. In the same psalm, Psalm 119, verse 75, look at what David says. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous. Now listen. And that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Who causes affliction? Well, it's always something else, and it's a bad view of God if you think that he does. No, David knew it. David isn't misunderstanding anything either. God causes affliction. And he brings it about, look at this, it's an amazing thing, he brings it about through faithfulness. In faithfulness, you have afflicted me? What? That doesn't make sense to our modern minds because faithfulness to us, goodness to us, means some sort of uh, uh, rainbows and unicorns. That's what the world, that's what the church has taught us for the past 25, 30 years. It's nonsense. And it's no wonder we haven't grown in our maturity because we've never been put down. The screws have never been tightened, and when they are, we quit and run away. We do it with our church attendance, we do it with our jobs, we do it in our marriages, we do it with everything. When the going gets tough, see ya, that must not be God's plan for me. It's just flat out absurd, church. Jeremiah recorded Ephraim's cry in Jeremiah 31, 18 through 19. Can you tell I'm fired up? (laughs) If I stand up, you better leave, okay? I'm just, that's when you know it's gone too far, right? Okay? So Jeremiah records Ephraim's cry in Jeremiah 31, 18 through 19. Now, this is a, 
a bit of a geeky side note. It's unlikely, uh, based on the context, that Jeremiah is actually talking about the person, Ephraim. Uh, it's most likely he's talking about the tribe, just as in Romans, when it talks about Jacob and it, when it talks about Esau. Read the context for yourself. It is not talking about the individuals. It's talking about the tribe. Here's how you know. The story that he relates comes way later, after Jacob and Esau are both dead. <laughs> so it's really interesting how the Bible communicates these ideas. But anyway, here's what Jeremiah says. I have surely heard Ephraim's moaning. I'm pretty sure that's what God thinks we all sound like. <laughs> anyway, you, dis you disciplined me like an unruly calf. I, I don't even know why. <laughs> it's awesome. Sorry, Lord, I'm a cow. Anyway, okay, you disciplined me like an unruly calf, and I have been disciplined. Restore me, and I will return because you are the Lord my God. After I strayed, I repented. After I came to understanding, I beat my breast. Notice the parallels in those two lines. Um, I was ashamed and humiliated because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Notice not only was it God who did the afflicting, a.k.a. discipline in this case, same term, Ephraim, uh, uh, to Ephraim, but it was for a specific purpose. What was the purpose? Restoration. It's always for restoration. Let's also note the order of the events. Look at this. Ephraim strays, the Lord afflicts him, and then he repents after the affliction because that's what happens. Right? That is how God works. He draws us back in all manner of ways. And we're going to see in just a second that affliction is actually a loving act. And so God still uses kindness to lead us to repentance. Uh, Ephraim beats his breast after coming to a right understanding uh, of God again. So that's what happens to us. We come to a right understanding, we repent, we beat our breast, and we run back to God. Affliction is the work of a good God, church. And the reason why is because it leads to a good end. And that end is righteousness. Notice Ephraim's final line. I was ashamed and humiliated. It was through the shame of, of Ephraim. It was through his pain. It was through his humiliation or his being humbled uh, that God brought about restoration. That God removed Ephraim's condemnation. This is perfectly true as well for us in the New Testament. Why? Because the scripture tells us that through the gospel, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been brought to humility. We have been brought to repentance. But there's a joy on the other side. We don't have to walk around feeling like we're low down, dirty, rotten. That's not what the scripture says either. It tells us that we're children. It calls us friends of God. Calls us his. I love that idea. I love that idea. The Apostle Paul models this uh, type of discipline when he interacts with the church at Corinth. Now, this is, this is one of those challenging verses. Uh, Paul has a very dizzying intellect, so listen to what he says. 2 Corinthians 7, 8, 9. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow... Though only for a while, I now rejoice. Oh my goodness, what are you talking about, Paul? Not that you were made sorrowful. Okay, so he's not rejoicing in the sorrow itself, but that you were made sorrowful. What? Anyway, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. I love how Paul thinks. For you were made sorrowful according to, say it out, church. 
what? Paul, you mean according to your will because you're a jerk, right? And you don't like us. No, 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 no. You were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Because there's a, a beautiful result if we will endure pain and suffering and affliction and humbling. We will be made right. And in that, it changes who we are. And we lose nothing in light of that. Sorrow, shame, and affliction uh, for affliction's sake are never God's aim. He's not mercurial. He's not, he's not cruel. He's, God, right, that, that word just means he's not moody. God's not like, yeah. I love him, I love him not. I love him, I love him not, right? It's not what he's doing. This is also never, or at least shouldn't be, the aim of church discipline. The goal of any discipline, God's or ours, is to bring about repentance unto fidelity or faithfulness, right? That's what we're, we're hoping for. Paul didn't reve- uh, uh, revel in the idea uh, of causing sorrow. And I don't, if you know somebody that does that, or if you've lived in a church or lived under leadership that, that thinks that way, obviously there's a problem. So we have to be careful with this. We don't revel in sorrow. We don't revel in brokenness. What we revel in is the idea that you might be brought to wholeness, healthy, life, peace. All of that is really important. Uh, This is actually uh, what a good church will look like. People who want repentance, uh, who want repentance unto faithfulness. Uh, So we need to get ourselves on board with a new way of thinking, right? Uh, Or maybe an old way of thinking. We need to get ourselves on board with David's way of thinking, with Jeremiah's way of thinking, with the Apostle Paul's way of thinking. In other words, we need to reset our definition of good. Because we've got a really, really messed up version of good. Good is just what makes us happy. It's not always the case. Over the past two weeks, I've expanded on Deuteronomy 8, showing that God actually let his people experience hunger in the wilderness. Uh, And why? So that they would learn to trust him. How many of you have learned to trust God more when life was hard? Yeah. Guess what? This is going to change a frame, uh, a folder in your brain. But he may have allowed that. And he may have caused that. Why? Because you trusting him is better. You trusting him is better. He, he's n- Listen, I, I was raised by a good mom and a good dad. I was, I was encouraged. I was pushed. I was all of those things. It was really great. They don't hold a candle to my father in heaven. So when he says, I'm going to afflict you for your sin, I'm going to humble you for the sake of my righteousness, I'm going to test you, I'm going to try you, I'm going to call you to a deeper level of faith, when he does that, it is good, church. It is good, and it always will be good. People might ask, well, why does God need to lead us to this kind of trust in him? Isn't real trust just our choice? Isn't it, isn't it the will of men? Well, sure, you need to accept, you need to trust, you need to walk after, you need to choose. The scripture tells us this a thousand times. But the answer is that as humans, we're going to put our trust in something. Amen? We're going to put our trust in something. But God is the only objective good in all of this. And so he is the only one who is safe. So he, he wants to train us to trust in him because, or call us to a trust in him because in doing so, we're being wooed to what is actually good. 
It would be wrong if God knows that he's good, knows that the rest of the world is bad, and sits silent, not wooing us to trust him. That would be crazy, right? God will use affliction to get our eyes off of that which is counterfeit. And we're, we're guilty of this all the time. The term, term affliction is pronounced anah, and it means to humble. And so let me ask you a few questions. God rejects the proud, right? You're not listening to me. God rejects the proud, right? Okay, hold on. Let me see who's not answering me. I'll just call you. No, I'm not going to call you out. Okay, God rejects the proud. God gives grace to the humble, right? He gives grace to the humble. God wants that none should perish, right? Okay, so now let's put it all together. If God wants that none should perish and that God rejects the proud... Don't you think that God will humble you because he wants all to come to know you, to know him? This is important for us to see. When we start to weave this beautiful picture that is all of God's word, we start to understand God has no problem afflicting or disciplining us. And if he didn't, we'd have a bigger problem. He loves the world so much that he wants that none should perish. He is already resolved in his heart of justice. He will reject the proud. So he humbles you so that he can accept you. That is amazing to me, church. Because the truth is, we won't often humble ourselves. We just double down. That's what we do. This is politics in America, right? Let's just double down. Why? Let's admit when we're wrong and let's move beyond. Let's change something about our life. If God didn't do this again, it would be a sign that he didn't actually love us and it would also be a sign that we didn't belong to him. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. Read this with me. It'll be on the screen. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 11. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. (laughs) I love that line. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Here's the exhortation. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Do you realize why that's in the text? God's justice, God's holiness is so fierce That when he corrects, it is not uncommon for your tendency to be to faint. But he says, don't don't do it. Don't faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, God's kindness leads us to repentance, church. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. But when we're faced with sin, we just want to give up again. When the going gets tough, we go. Paul says that, or the writer of Hebrews says that we're supposed to strive even to the point of shedding blood. That's how far you go in your fight against sin. And the writer says, you haven't even gotten there yet. Just remember this, you're only disciplined because you're loved. If it is for discipline that you endure, God deals with you, or it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Well, in the 21st century, Paul, no. Anyway, but if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. I don't want to be in that camp. I want to accept my 
affliction. I want to accept my humbling. I want to accept those things. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Well, not in the 21st century, Paul. Uh, Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us, read it out, church, for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems to not be joyful. Can I get an amen? Okay. But it seems, it, instead it seems sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, that is discipline, that is affliction, that is being humbled, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I don't know how many of you have connected this, but righteousness and peaceful fruit are the connection. Righteousness and peaceful fruit. Oh, but Lord, doing it your way is so much harder. Peaceful fruit. Your brain needs a little shift, <laughs> right? It, need, it needs a, a, a washing. That's just what the scripture would tell us. So affliction comes. Sometimes it comes at the hand of God. Sometimes by the permission of God. But always for the purpose of God. And that is to work things together for our good. Psalm 119, verse 68. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. David understood that God had afflicted him, and it was because he had gone astray. Even still, David declares that God is good and that God did good. What kind of teacher do you want but a teacher that is good and does good? It's what we're all called to if we have any position of teacher, because we're supposed to reflect our Heavenly Father. In Psalm 86, verse 5, David said, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. That's the God you serve. He is a good God. But look at, look at the fact that he does good as well. Deuteronomy 8.16 reads this way. In the wilderness he fed you with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, afflict you, discipline you, Same idea. That he might humble you and that he might test you. No fair. Yes, he's going to test you. To do good for you in the end. God is good and God does good. And the direct translation of God doing good, according to Deuteronomy, was withholding food so you would trust him. Hmm. We need to reframe our definition of good, church. We need to reframe it. There are a lot of people in the world today that hate God precisely because he's God. They hate him because that's who he is. It's his character. He is what he says he is. And they don't like his character because foolish fairy tale preachers have taught nonsense for far too long. God loves you enough to drop the hammer. Mark likes that for some reason. (laughs) He loves you, and he loves you enough to drop the hammer. He loves you to do this, but it is for a purpose. And because we lost sight of the purpose, because we don't like any pain whatsoever in our life, we have abandoned the real God, and we've replaced him with these little unicorn rainbow gods that don't make any sense. This is idolatry. It's nonsense, church. God is good and God does good. 
Even a quick survey of the scriptures bears this out. Remember this. In the story of Jonah and Nineveh, it was God who was good. It was Jonah who was not, right? Everybody loves to talk about this idea of the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. Same yesterday, today, and forever. He's never changed, church. He's never changed. He was good then. He's good now. He was just then. He is just now. We really do need to reset that definition in our minds. Otherwise, we're going to keep promoting a God that doesn't make sense. And the second, here's, here's another challenge. The second our family, the second our friends, the second our disciples, because we're all supposed to be making disciples, the second those people come up against affliction, adversity, trial, pain, and all those things, they're going to find out your version of God is a big load of crap. They're going to find out it's nonsense. And they're going to go, why? What happened? And you're going to have to make up some dumb belief that you didn't have enough faith to get through something or whatever. This is tragic, church. This is tragic. The older I get, the more fired up I get about a faulty view of God that paints him either in a uh, megalomaniac, meticulous, mean God picture or in this soft Jesus always wants to give you a hug picture. Sometimes he doesn't. There are times I don't want to give my daughters a hug. You want to know when those times are? When they're whining. (laughs) Which is pretty much every Sunday morning as we get ready for church. (laughs) Right? It's frustrating. Why is it frustrating? Because they're they're not reflecting my image. They're not reflecting the image that I've put in them. And so it's frustrating. So what do I do? I go to discipline them. And I shape them. Psalm 119, 69 through 71. The arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart, I will observe your precepts. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted. (laughs) Read that again, church. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. David's fidelity, David's faithfulness mattered to him. His reputation, as we understand it, was a man after God's heart. But he was still a sinner and a vile one at that. We see some of these verses that, uh, in these verses that there was a conspiracy against David, right? They, they forged a lie against him. That's pretty big, right? Uh, these lies were orchestrated and spread about David, and yet David's defense was, kill them all. <laughs> no, that's not David's defense. David's defense was, I'm going to obey your word, Lord. I'm going to run back to your heart. I'm going to do it your way because that's what matters. Jesus told us that if our brother comes to us seeking forgiveness, uh, we are to grant it to him or her uh, seven times in a day if necessary. Seven times in a day. What do we do if the sin that's against us is like what was against David? A forged lie. A plotted out, schemed, I'm trying to destroy your character kind of lie. According to David, we are to forgive. According to David, we're to seek God's word. According to Jesus, we're to turn the other cheek. He is forgiving his enemy by turning his attention back to God and by staying the course. Here's another interesting thought for you. Notice that those who forged the lie were described as arrogant. What does God do with the arrogant again? He rejects them, right? That's what the scripture says. Wasn't David arrogant at some point in his life? Have you not been arrogant at some point in your life? Of course you have. But what led you to repentance? What led David to repentance? 
the love of God. The love of God is connected with the discipline of God. Discipline is affliction. God afflicts us because he loves us, and that kindness leads us to repentance. It leads us to this. Maybe, and this is, the, this is the interesting thought for you, maybe our forgiveness of those who have forged lies against us can be the catalyst that leads to their repentance. I believe that I've recently experienced this, and it was such a joy. It was such a joy. But I want to challenge you. Maybe you're staying the course of loving your enemy, staying the course of forgiving even seven times a day, will be the catalyst that leads uh, that person to repentance. What does the scripture tell us to do uh, with arrogant, sinful people? Insofar as it depends on us, we're supposed to live at peace with them. We're supposed to love them, even if they're our enemy. We trust that vengeance, if it's required, belongs to God anyway. I've told you guys this a thousand times. I'm so glad that I'm not the judge on the bench. I'm glad that God has not given me the gavel. Why? Because I would use it wrong. And while I'm using it wrong, I'm going to add to this, while I use it wrong, I sit here in judgment over God telling him he uses it wrong. He uses it perfectly right no matter what you think. I'm the one who just gets off. I'm the one who misses the point so often. So then David offers this strange line here. He says that those who conspire against him had hearts that were covered with fat. So it's heart disease. That's what was being communicated there. It's not what's being communicated right. The ESV translates it differently. It says that their heart is unfeeling like fat. This is the same concept as having a seared conscience. There was so much insulation around their heart, they couldn't be pricked by God's affliction. They couldn't be pricked by what God's word would say. I hope that's not any of us. The contrast that David painted here is his heart, a heart that delights in God's law, and an evil heart that is seared or lost all feeling. What can we learn from this? Well, here's what we learn. The antidote, according to David, the antidote uh, to a heart, a hard heart, is to delight in God's law. The second we begin to ignore God's law, church, is the second that we're in big trouble. We're in big trouble because back to what I said before, we're just going to justify and justify and justify and justify. We're going to double down. We're going to double down. This is just who we are. Next, David praised being afflicted. Uh, and I'm not sure that we, again, have the file folder for that. David is, isn't a masochist. He doesn't enjoy this kind of pain. But he does understand what the Apostle Paul later wrote, that we must, not, we must uh, participate in the fellowship of Christ's suffering. This is what we're to do. Unlike Christ who suffered for our sins, we suffer affliction for our holiness, unto holiness, unto righteousness. Um, so that's important. This is, that's awesome. Keep reading it out loud. That's awesome. I love it. I'm going to go with that guy's voice because it's so much better than mine. This is how being afflicted, though, helps us learn God's statutes. God's statutes rightly understand our affliction. Affliction shows us what went wrong, and the statutes show us what goes right. Okay, final piece in my conclusion here. Psalm 119, verse 72. Watch the words on the board. Uh, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Why is the law better to David than riches? Because they're greater riches. These riches far outweigh anything he could, he could gain. Psalm, 119, or Psalm 19, verses 9 through 11. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. 
The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey that, uh, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, right, by them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So the word of God warns us and it gives us a great reward in keeping them. What a beautiful truth. This is better than gold can. We can't take it with us. Proverbs 8, 10 through 11. This is what David taught his son Solomon. Take my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than choices gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. My fruit is better than gold, and this is the fruit of God's righteousness. This is the fruit of God's word here, but I'm going to connect these with something in a second. My fruit is better than gold, and even pure gold, and my yield better than choicest silver. Why did David love God's law more than gold and silver? Because they're better than the choicest silver. They're better than even pure gold. Hebrews 12, 11 again says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Discipline produces peaceful fruit. Galatians 5, we read at the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, There is no law, right? This is the same fruit that Solomon spoke of. And it's a fruit that comes from God's word. It's a fruit that comes through God's statutes. It's a fruit that is born out in affliction. If we want to see the fruit of the Spirit, you cannot imagine, you cannot pretend as though you will arrive at the fruit of the Spirit without discipline, without pain, without affliction. The Bible tells us that the foolishness of, uh, the foolishness of children, the fool, or that foolishness is bound up in the heart of children. How many of you have kids? Now give me an amen because I see your hands. Anyway, okay. So foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. What are you to do with the foolishness that's bound up in the heart of a child? Scripture says that you drive it out with the rod of discipline, affliction, humbling. You drive it out with these things. It's not to hurt your children. It's to produce something in them. We are God's children, right? So why would we be surprised that he would use the rod of affliction, the rod of discipline, the rod of humility to bring about the very fruit that he says is better than everything else? Church, all I want you to know today and all I want you to walk away with is that there may be things in your life that are really hard right now. And God may be the one afflicting you. I've proven it beyond a shadow of a doubt that God causes affliction. But his affliction is to an end. It's a beautiful end. Our response should not be when affliction comes, I must always uh, be getting my relationship with God wrong. What do I mean? You may be getting something morally wrong, but you may not be getting your relationship with God wrong because it is God's discipline that reveals that he loves you. He only disciplines those he loves. Everybody else he can condemn real quick. He's God. He's just. He's good. He knows what he's doing. 
So when you're facing affliction and when life is not going the way you anticipated it to go, instead of crying in your beer and wondering what's going wrong, instead of all of those things, why don't you run to God and ask him the question, what do you want me to learn? What are you trying to teach me, God? And what I know is that he will graciously and lovingly speak to you. And he will graciously and lovingly speak to you until you get it. That's a really challenging piece, isn't it? I know this is going to be a shock to you guys, but I'm hard-headed. I'm just... I'm just observing and taking notes on who I'm not talking to this week. So It's half of us. Thanks, Mark. I'm going to go home in my little office and talk to myself. Anyway. God doesn't God is not intimidated by me being hard-headed. Right? He's not intimidated by me being stubborn. He's actually persistent in his love. So much so that he beats down those walls constantly in my life. There's never a time when he is not hurting me. And those of you who have ears, you can hear. He is good, church. And when he does that, it is beautiful. Because what the result is, is that I get to look more like my Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.